So just a couple quick announcements. If you're one of the 8,000 subscribers to the EM Cases newsletter, the latest email that was sent out to you with the release of this podcast contains a very important link. And that very important link is to the first ever survey that we're asking you to fill out for us. Now, in order to make EM Cases the best set it can possibly be so that your learning experience is always mind-blowing, we ask that you please take just five minutes to tell us what you think about all the different EM Cases resources and give us any feedback that you think will make EM Cases better for you. All right, now on to medications for upper GI bleeds. So we've intubated our sick 42-year-old alcoholic GI bleed patient. We've given some fluids to maintain organ perfusion. We've ordered up some red cells. It's time to start thinking about meds to help stop the bleeding until the patient gets scoped. So let's start with PPIs. Just to remind the listeners, the typical dose of something like pantoprazole, as an example, is 80 milligram bolus followed by an 8 milligram per hour infusion. So Dr. Swaminathan, what does the literature tell us about the value of giving IV proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, in the acute upper GI bleeder in the ED? Nothing could be more part of routine practice than the PPI bolus and drip on these patients, and nothing could have less literature to defend its role than giving a PPI bolus and drip. But We all do it. We all do it, and our GI docs all ask for it. So let's cut right to the bottom line here, and let's talk about numbers needed to treat, because we've got good literature to tell us. When we talk about preventing death and decreasing transfusion, the NNT for PPI is infinity. It's a little eight on its side, which means that there aren't enough patients in the world with upper GI bleed for us to save somebody's life by giving them a PPI. Now, there are some NNTs that are not infinity, The NNT is 1 in 15 for helping when we're talking about preventing re-bleeding, and this is after we've done the endoscopy and tried to stop something. So we've gone in, we've done the endoscopy, we've done an intervention, and then they go back and re-scope the patient, and they find that having a PPI on board reduces the risk of having re-bleeding. Not necessarily what I am focused on in the emergency department, but again, this is probably why our GI docs like it. When we talk about helping patients from the perspective of avoiding surgical interventions, the NNT is, again, infinity. And when we talk about helping patients from the perspective of avoiding a repeat endoscopy, the NNT is infinity once again. So we don't have good literature to tell us to do this. In fact, the literature says that it's not really that helpful in the emergent situation. We also have some NICE guidelines. So the NICE guidelines say that we shouldn't offer PPIs to patients with non-variceal upper GI bleeds unless endoscopy shows an ulcer. Now, all of that being said, all of our GI docs love PPIs. They love them. This is like the first-line treatment for them for so many disorders. They love using them. So if, again, I have this patient, I've intubated them, I'm actively resuscitating, and I'm on the phone with my consultant, and they say, hey, can you give them a PPI? I don't fight with them. Because I don't think it's that big a deal. I just want them to come in and do the scope. So yes, sure, we're going to give a PPI, no problem. But don't rattle it off as one of the first things in your management. Remember, if you rattle off 10 medications that the patient needs, you're definitely not going to get the one that you really, really want. So in my initial resuscitation, PPI is nowhere near it. But I'm happy to give it after I've done that initial resuscitation. So suffice to say that even though the evidence isn't there, Uh, practically speaking, there's not much of a downside to giving it, and most of our GI specialists will want it. 
it's definitely not a priority. And if a sick patient who you're resuscitating, a PPI shouldn't be the first thing you think about. You can definitely wait to give the PPI until a bit later. What about, I understand there's a bit of controversy in terms of giving a bolus versus giving a bolus plus an infusion. What, what does the literature tell us there? Yeah, again, Anton, like you said, the bolus plus infusion is the standard way to do this, but it probably doesn't make a difference. The bolus alone, so giving 80 milligrams of a bolus of PPI is probably just as good as giving the bolus and the drip. And honestly, if the patient can take PO, an oral dose is just fine. Now, in our massively bleeding upper GI bleeder, we're not going to be giving a PO dose of a PPI, but I just give the bolus and call it a day. I don't need an infusion of that eight milligrams per hour. It doesn't make any difference. Sometimes in those really sick patients, you need every line that you can get uh, for other things. So that's, I think that's really good to know that if you're going to give a PPI, probably a bolus uh, will suffice and you can save your IVs for some other more important things. And now for EBM Bottom Line. Hi, this is Justin Morgenstern back for another EBM Bottom Line. This month, we're talking GI bleed, so what better topic than proton pump inhibitors or PPIs for the GI bleed patient? There are a lot of different papers we could discuss, but I'm just going to jump straight to the Cochrane review on this topic. This is Sreed Heron et al., 2010. This Cochrane review found six randomized controlled trials that looked at giving PPI or placebo to patients in the emergency department with upper GI bleeds. There was a total of 2,200 patients in these trials. The results are pretty simple. There was no change at all in mortality, in rebleeding, in the need for transfusion, or in the need for surgery. The conclusion of the Cochrane Review is, there is no evidence that PPI treatment affects clinically important outcomes, namely mortality, rebleeding, or need for surgery. Well, that's pretty easy. No changes in anything that we care about. But why do we give these drugs? Now, I should note that even the guidelines by the American College of Gastroenterology mention that there are no improvement in clinical outcomes such as bleeding, surgery, or death. But they do mention that PPIs will decrease the number of patients who have higher risk stigmata of hemorrhage at the time of endoscopy. Well, what does that mean? And why do we think that? Their recommendation is based off of one randomized controlled trial that trial was an RCT by Danishmand et al. in the BMJ 1992. It included 1,147 patients and they were randomized to IV omeprazole or placebo. In terms of the primary outcome measures, there were no differences in this trial. That includes no differences in the rate of transfusions, in rebleeding, in the need for operation, or in mortality. However, there is a secondary outcome that was different. It was an unexpected decrease in the signs of bleeding at the time of endoscopy. There are two problems with that outcome. The first is that it was a secondary outcome and all the primary outcomes and all the patient important outcomes of this trial were negative. The second problem is the system that people use to rate these signs of upper endoscopy. In generally, we use something called the forest classification. But if you look at a study by Mondardini et al. in endoscopy of 1998, they show that even trained endoscopists being shown pristine images don't agree with each other on what rating on the forest scale to give each patient. 
If you understand kappa values, the kappas were between 0.44 and 0.49, which is generally pretty bad. So when you sum this all together, PPIs do not seem to change any patient important outcome, and the only outcome that we're seeing changed is an unreliable measurement that was only a secondary outcome in one trial. When I sum that all together, my EBM bottom line is that in the emergency department setting, there does not seem to be any role for the use of PPIs in patients with upper GI bleeds. Of course, nothing is ever absolute in evidence-based medicine. These trials didn't necessarily contain the sickest of the sick patients, and there is some evidence for using PPIs after endoscopy, so logically they might work in the emergency department. I know that some people argue that if you have a patient with a massive GI bleed, you should just go ahead and give the PPIs because we want to try everything, throw the kitchen sink at them. My concern is that PPIs might distract you from the things that might actually save this patient's life, like blood transfusion, good resuscitation, and early endoscopy. I don't think that there's any problem with pushing a single bolus of IV PPI. However, you could easily get yourself in trouble by trying to set up infusions when you have better things to do. For now, I tend to avoid PPIs altogether when managing these patients, and I leave that decision up to the admitting medicine team after I'm done the initial resuscitation. That's all for this time. Talk to you later. All right, so that's PPIs. Now, let's talk about antibiotics. I mean, this never really made sense to me, but it's my understanding that there is some pretty good evidence for benefit of giving, say, a gram of IV ceftriaxone in patients with presumed variceal bleeding in the ED. So, Dr. Swaminathan, what exactly is the benefit of antibiotics in acute GI bleed, and why does it work? So, we talk about, again, medications that are routine practice, like the PPI, but don't have any benefit. This is one that is often forgotten, but clearly has a benefit. When we look at the literature here, it's an NNT of one in 22. So for every 22 patients that we treat with ceftriaxone, we have a good outcome. And Anton, that good outcome isn't, I didn't need to rescope them or they didn't have any bleeding stigmata on my rescope. It's a life saved. Every 22 patients that we give a gram of ceftriaxone to, we will save one patient's life. And when we talk about infection prevented, it's just four. For every four patients we give it to, we prevent an infection. I mean, that's incredible, Swami. So we're actually saving one life in 22 every time we give ceftriaxone for an upper GI bleeder with varices. That's, that's amazing. And then we're preventing an infection in a quarter of those patients. Think about how low those numbers are, Anton. I mean, that's incredible NNT. We talk about drugs. We, we embrace drugs that have NNTs in the 80 or 90 range, and we think those are great. This is 22 for saving a life. Now, you alluded to this, but the reason is why. Why does this help? The patients who survive their immediate upper GI bleed, if they die later on, they die from infection. They die from overwhelming sepsis. There's an increased risk for bacterial infection in these patients. And why is not completely understood, but it probably has to do with the fact that, one, they are immunocompromised to begin with. These are patients who are chronic drinkers. They're cirrhotics. Their immune system does not function the same way. But on top of that, these patients who have cirrhosis, they usually have some translocation of bacteria out of the gut, and they are dealing with some low level of bacteremia to begin with. So a dose of ceftriaxone, it saves lives. It prevents infections. These are huge numbers. These are really, really 
impactful numbers that we're seeing with just a single dose of that ceftriaxone. Now, whether that's continued as an inpatient, that's a little bit up to the inpatient doc, and Salim can probably speak to that a lot more than I can. But we start that therapy, and that keys the inpatient team into understanding that that has to be done. So we talk about things that we must do versus things that we do to facilitate someone else's job. The ceftriaxone is something that we absolutely 100% must do. Antibiotic prophylaxis in patients with cirrhosis and an upper GI bleed reduces all-cause mortality, reduces bacterial infection. It actually seems to also reduce the rebleeding rates as well as hospitalization length. Wow. So we should almost be thinking about these patients with upper GI bleeds who come in in shock, like a septic shock patient, you know, get those antibiotics in early. All right. So uh, the one medication we haven't talked about, which is often used in these patients, is octreotide or uh, terlipressin in the UK. So just to remind our listeners, the dose of octreotide for variceal bleeds is 50 micrograms bolus followed by 50 micrograms per hour. Dr. Rosé, what does the literature tell us about uh, the value of, of these medications? Yeah, I you know the first thing is how does octreotide work? It it reduces the splanchnic blood flow and acid production. So it, it's almost taking Swami had mentioned earlier this uh, like a high pressure system because they may have like portal hypertension. This helps reduce some of that pressure. So almost like a like a permissive hypotension if for lack of a better analogy. But when you look at the number needed to treat, none were really helped in preventing death or need for transfusion. But it can reduce the risk for continued bleeding and upper GI bleed, regardless of the presence or absence of bleeding varices. And let's think about that for a second, because traditionally we've used octreotide for variceal bleeds. But in your non-variceal bleeders, you're doing the same thing. You're reducing that splanchnic pressure. So if they have something like a peptic ulcer and they are briskly bleeding from that, you're reducing some of that pressure in that. And so there is some evidence, although not robust, that actually shows that this may actually even benefit people in non-variceal bleeds. Now, there was a Cochrane review, Anton, that found no effect on mortality, but the rates of continued bleeding and need for transfusions were decreased uh, when giving this octreotide or somatostatin analog for uh, variceal-related upper GI bleeds. In my practice... I've actually started giving this now. I know it does take up an IV, but it physiologically makes sense why this would work for the outcome of continued bleeding and blood transfusions. All right. So just to sum up the medications there, a definite yes for antibiotics for these upper GI bleeders. Octreotide may be beneficial, but doesn't really help in terms of mortality Um, It's not a bad idea to give them in any upper GI bleeder, not just variceal bleeding. And for PPIs, there's really no good evidence. Uh, Certainly, if you're going to give it, just a bolus is adequate. So I want to talk a little bit about risk stratification and disposition for upper GI bleeders. We've been talking a lot about sick patients Uh, But we have to remember that GI bleeds in general resolve spontaneously in up to 80% of patients, and about 15% of patients will have continued bleeding that will require intervention. So that gives you just kind of a general idea in terms of what we should be thinking about disposition in these patients. You know, it's fair to say that most patients don't need to be admitted, but there are some of the clinical predictors that you need to think about in terms of high risk for re-bleeding and mortality. And they're kind of the usual suspects. 
there's age over 65, patient presenting in shock, if they have, like we were saying before, uh, comorbidities, if they have a low hemoglobin, if their coag studies are out of whack, and you know, even if they have poor social supports, these are all some things to consider in terms of your disposition. But I understand that there's been some scores that help us determine more specifically about who needs to be admitted and, and who can be sent home, who needs to be scoped, and that sort of thing. We'll have these scores in the notes, but I just want to go over for our listeners what these scores are, because you'll probably hear about them. Um, the first one is the the Rockall score. So, Dr. Rosé, could you just give our listeners a quick run-through of, of the Rockall score? So, yeah, Anton. So, the Rockall score is a score that kind of helps predict who needs urgent endoscopy versus who can have a more delayed endoscopy. And I'll, I'll let the listeners or whoever decide what that timing exactly is. Is that less than 12 hours? Is that 12 to 24 hours? That part's not important. The part is, is who needs a scope sooner than later. And when you look at a low risk rock all score, the people you're talking about are people who are aged less than 60 years. They're hemodynamically stable. So they have systolic blood pressures greater than hundred millimeters of mercury pulses of less than a hundred. And then really no major comorbidities such as congestive heart failure, coronary artery disease, liver failure, disseminated malignancy. So that's the Rockall score. Dr. Swaminathan, just give our listeners a quick run-through of the Glasgow-Blatchford score. Yeah, so the Glasgow-Blatchford score is supposed to risk stratify these patients, say who is low risk, not for having major bleeding, but low risk that they could even go home. And if you have all of these things checked off, if everything looks great, Glasgow-Blatchford says that your risk of having a bad outcome is extremely low and you can send them home. The keys for that or the components of it are a urea less than 18.2 milligrams per deciliter, a hemoglobin greater than 12 for men and greater than 11 for women, and systolic blood pressure over 110 millimeters of mercury, a pulse less than 100, no melana, syncope, cardiac failure, or liver disease. So if you have all of those things checked off, this says you could go home and follow up with the GI doc as an outpatient, but I'll tell you, I have never seen a patient in my department who had an upper GI bleed, who had all of those things checked off, that all of those things were normal and they could just go home with a pat on the back. In fact, I had one that I thought was pretty close and looked pretty good. And I called our GI doc and said, hey, I got this young kid here. He's really low risk by Glasgow Blatchford. I, I'd like to send him for follow-up with you. He goes, you have an upper GI bleed patient who you want to send home for me to see in the office. I said, yeah. He goes, no, no, no. Bring him into the hospital, and I'll see him in a couple of hours. So uh, you have to really think about whether this is a smart thing or not. If the person has a GI doctor already to follow up with, they probably have some risk factors that make them not low risk. And if they don't have someone, they often have enough risk factors that they're high risk to come in and get scope. So it's nice to have these risk stratification tools. I'm not using them, though. And Dr. Rose, but what's your take on these scores? If you've taken care of enough GI bleeds, you've been humbled enough that you know that there's no one score that's going to help predict these patients. I think you need to look at the patient in front of you. I agree with Swami. I can't remember the last time I took care of a GI bleeder that met all these criteria. I'm not clinically using these scores. I am more looking at the patient in front of me, what's going on to make these decisions. I can't remember the last time I've used these scores. As a matter of fact, one time when I quoted this score to a gastroenterologist, Kind of same response as Swami. So you've got an upper GI bleed and you want to send them home? No, go ahead and admit them. I'll come in and see them. 
Yeah, I mean, my take home from these scores, again, comes back to the comorbidities. You know, both these scores have the comorbidities listed in them. And the comorbidities are the things that most strongly correlates with their prognosis. You know, so when you're deciding about disposition, I think it's really important to understand that most patients don't die from blood loss, but rather from decompensation from comorbidities and complications from blood transfusions and things like that. Again, what we can learn from these risk scores is the importance of taking a careful look at those comorbidities. Um, you know, the one thing that these scores don't have in them is a lactate. And, you know, we were talking about how GI bleeders are a little bit like the bleeding trauma patient and, um, and lactate is pretty helpful in those patients. Is there any literature out there in terms of how useful lactate is as a prognostic indicator in your sick GI bleeder? Yeah, there absolutely is. And so in your critically ill patients with GI bleed, L. Kirsch and colleagues demonstrated that admission lactate was predictive of outcome with a high sensitivity but a low specificity. So the median lactate um, level for the non-survivors was 8.8. I mean, that's a pretty high lactate compared with 2.0 in the survivors. And then there was another study by Shaw and colleagues that found inpatient mortality was 6.4 times higher in those with ED lactates of greater than four. And if anybody remembers from the old sepsis studies, four was kind of that magic number we looked at. People who had lactates greater than four had a higher mortality than people who had a lactate less than four. So that'd be consistent with even some of the sepsis literature. So I would say, yes, lactate can be helpful in making a prognostic decision. It looks like kind of lactates from about four and up worse outcomes, lactates less than four, maybe not as bad. But again, I wouldn't bank on one lab test. I would look at the patient in front of me. Oh, it's just a marker of badness, right? I mean, that's what lactate is, regardless of what the disease process is. If they're sick and their lactate's elevated, they're probably a little sicker. But let's remember, too, that young patients, they have a profound ability to create a lactate and elevate a lactate. Older patients without a lot of reserve, they may not actually be able to create that lactate. And lactate also can be a little bit misleading in the patient with cirrhosis because the liver's needed to metabolize that lactate. So exactly what Salim said is the key. If the patient's sick and they have an elevated lactate, that's a pretty bad marker. If they're sick and they don't have an elevated lactate, they're still sick. It doesn't matter what the lactate is. All right. So that's all about lactate and prognosis. We've talked about medications, we've talked about airway, we've talked about resuscitating these patients. Let's try and put it all together now. We've got our alcoholic upper GI bleeder. Dr. Swaminathan, can you just run through for us how you'd manage this patient from the time you're called to the resuscitation room to the time that they're transferred out of your ED? Absolutely. The key here is to be a resuscitationist. Act aggressively act quickly, prioritize the things that matter, and assume that even if they're not currently unstable, they're going to become unstable soon. So activate your consultants early. Call GI, call the ICU, call IR. You can even consider calling general surgery in some of these patients as well. Have very specific requests for each of these folks. You don't want them to just come down willy-nilly and then start guiding the resuscitation. You want to give them exact tasks of why you're calling them. If the patient is actively hematemesizing in front of you, resuscitate aggressively with blood, and then you got to think about taking over that airway. You're going to want to drop an NG tube to suck out the stomach if you can, and a nice way to do this is with DSI, or delayed sequence intubation. You're basically using a drug like ketamine for procedural sedation to put that tube in. 
Remember to have multiple suction set up. Practice your salad technique so that you can solo this airway if you need to. And that's how you can really take care of that grossly soiled or grossly dirty airway. While you're waiting for your endoscopist, while you're doing these things, give them a gram of triaxone. If time allows, give them the octreotide and the PPI, not because it's going to save the patient's life, but because your endoscopist wants it on board and there's no reason to pick a fight with the guy that you need to come in and help you. Have the Blakemore tube at the bedside and consider using it. If you're not already about to drop the Blakemore, this is a good time to review how to do that because we do it very rarely. And hopefully by the time that you've gotten through all of those steps, your endoscopist is there and ready to put the scope in. Nicely said, man. I wish all my resuscitations went that well, perfectly scripted. (laughs) I can honestly say that not a single GI bleeder I've ever resuscitated went that smoothly. There's going to be some rocky roads in there for sure. All right. So um, last question. What do you guys think about the future of GI bleed management in terms of uh, how we're going to manage GI bleeders in, say, five or 10 years? So one thing that I don't know will make a profound difference, but we think it will, is really knowing these patients' coagulation profile, how clotty they are, how bleedy they are, for lack of better terms. So having something like TEG at the bedside to be able to figure out what products can help to guide this resuscitation, and not that we have literature saying that TEG is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it makes sense because these cirrhotic patients, you don't really know what factors are up and what factors are down and what to give them. So TEG might be a really nice thing. Reboa is something that is there, and this might be one of those medical indications for placing these resuscitative endovascular balloons into the aorta. Basically, if I can stop blood flow to those varices completely, that might give us enough time to do an intervention. And this might be really profound in those patients where GI comes in and they scope and they cannot get a clear feel. They can't look and see what's bleeding to take care of it. So Reboa might actually give that opportunity. And then the last thing is Could we be doing endoscopy ourselves? Could we, the emergency physician, learn how to do the endoscopy so we don't have to wait for our endoscopist to come in? And again, I don't think anybody is there, anybody's doing this, but you know, there are a lot of other procedures that we're learning. There are a lot of other procedures that we think we may be picking up. This might be one of the things that could really help a very select group of patients. Yeah, I mean, we're already starting to see more transesophageal echo in the emergency department, so I don't think it's that far-fetched to think about EP endoscopy, Swami. The other thing that maybe isn't as invasive that we should think about is maybe capsule endoscopy in the ED. Again, not for therapeutics, but more for diagnosis. And I, I think that's what you're talking about when you say EP endoscopy. I don't know, maybe we will be deploying therapeutics as well in the future, but definitely to just take a look and see what's going on. Capsule endoscopy is something, and there's a couple of studies out there now looking at this about having the patient swallow this little capsule and just watching it go down to see if you can see where the the bleed is coming from. That would be super cool. (laughs) Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much, both of you, Dr. Swaminathan and Dr. Rose, for your amazing insights into the pretty complicated world of GI bleed management. You know, I know that I'll be more confident managing the next GI bleeder that I see, and whether it's a matter of safely discharging them home or or saving the crashing patient. Uh, So I can tell the listeners this. Next time you hear your nurse say, Anton. EMS just brought a guy into recess bed two with a massive GI bleed who looks pre-arrest. We need you now. Hopefully you can say something brazen like, no problem, I got this, rather than, 
Could you please page up to date stat? Anton, thanks for having me on. This was a great episode. I think it's a very important topic to discuss. It's very nuanced. And uh, the only thing I would say is uh, we did a rebel cast on this about timing of endoscopy. And what I'm taking away from all this is it's not just resuscitate before you intubate in your sick GI bleeders, but also resuscitate before you endoscopate. So I'm saying that, first of all, I'm very disappointed that I didn't get to make up a new word on this particular podcast, but fine. Endoscopate is the word of the day. Anton, really, I love this topic. I'm really thankful that you had both of us on to talk about it. These are scary patients, but they're scary because we're not always prepared. And hopefully, after listening to the three of us talk about this, people feel more prepared and ready to take it on. So don't be afraid of these patients. Just learn the management that you need to take care of them. Understand that they're sick and that you're really going to bring all of your resuscitation strengths, all of your people in your hospital that can help you. You're going to bring them all to bear on this patient to give them a good outcome. (laughs) 